Welcome to Tradecraft. International trade makes headlines, especially when disputes arise among countries. Business is on the front lines of these disputes, but they are waged over politics and law. Join host Colin Janik in conversation with trade expert and Georgetown University professor Mark Bush as Tradecraft takes an in-depth look at trade issues making headlines today and the ones that will be making headlines tomorrow. This is Tradecraft. Today we're going to talk about semiconductors and the title of the talk is going to be something along the lines of chips and dip. Chips playing on the House and Senate resolutions to do something about shoring up the supply chain and semiconductors and dip being my idea that any effort to do so will require a complementary push on intellectual property. DIP for me is the Defensive Intellectual Property Act, which has no empirical reference as of yet, but certainly should be a priority for Congress as it begins to deliberate on the House and Senate resolutions. Semiconductors are all the rage right now. COVID has forced up demand of those things that use chips as the internal brains of everything from the gizmos that keep us safe and healthy to the entertainment sources that we waste away the hours with under lockdown. And as a result, given that there's a broader discussion of reshoring supply chains, semiconductors have come in for special attention. In fact, President Joe Biden has issued an executive order calling for a review of the U.S. semiconductor supply chain, looking to see if something can be done to make it more resilient, to make it safer, more secure, etc. It's not the only industry getting this kind of attention, but what's interesting about semiconductors is that it's gotten this kind of attention before, and for many of the same reasons. And the rub is really that semiconductors are not your average industry. Wildly complicated supply chains. A chip's components can travel for 25,000 miles before finding their way into final assembly. The industry is quite strategic. In fact, it's probably best described as the strategic industry that makes other industries strategic. But the business side of things makes it difficult to find a knee-jerk reaction to shore up the supply chain anytime soon. And what President Biden's review is likely to produce is a statement that there's no quick fix. But this episode is a call to not revert to protectionism in lieu of a quick fix. And that message is something that we can learn from the lessons of the 1980s. And it's something that is certainly front and center in discussions of the industry when you take a step back from the current moment and think about where we are and where we've come from. The lessons of the U.S.-Japan semiconductor rivalry from the 1980s are telling. The U.S. ran its first trade deficit in chips in 1978. And between 1979 and 1989, the U.S. and Japan signed 15 accords on electronics, many of these bearing on semiconductors. Trade has always been central in the story told about semiconductors. Not that long ago, the industry was described as the quintessential import protection as export promotion industry. Back in the 80s, we had dumping of chips. We had the subsidy of chips. And we had Section 301 review of chips. All of this could easily come back into play. 
In fact, President Trump's Section 301 efforts tripped up not only Chinese chips, but Chinese materials and equipment vendors as well, much to the chagrin of the U.S. industry. The crown jewel of the 1980s was the so-called 1986 U.S.-Japan Semiconductor Trade Agreement, which had a number of important functions, one of which was to walk back all of the protectionism that came about as a result of many of the similar demands we're hearing today, i.e. shore up the chip industry for the sake of countless downstream applications, not least being the computer industry. But semiconductors have always been plagued by one fundamental tension, and that is the technology leaks effortlessly. The technology leaks domestically and internationally, and this has always been a hurdle that the industry has had to overcome. Now, it's true that protectionism has played a role. But ultimately, even back in the 1980s, the tariffs and non-tariff barriers were deemed largely to be a secondary act. In fact, back in that era, the Semiconductor Industries Association said that the ultimate answer was incentives, not protectionism. That's the claim being made today. You're hearing a lot of discussion about the kind of incentives that would be required to reshore more crucial aspects of the supply chain. But the notion that the supply chain means relocating one fab back to the U.S. is simply wrong. This is a very complicated supply chain, and there are parts of it which will never come back to the United States, or for that matter, to any wealthy country. The theme of this episode is simple. Intellectual property is the prerequisite to doing anything intelligent in the semiconductor industry. That's always been true. In fact, it's important to keep in mind that intellectual property was an issue in semiconductors long before any other industry was really taking IP all that seriously. The Semiconductor Trade Agreement took note of this and worried about the fact that the technology was diffusing quite readily across the Pacific. What the Japanese invested in, the U.S. got a look at. What the U.S. invested in benefited the Japanese. In a famous secret side letter to the 1986 Semiconductor Trade Agreement, the Japanese made a somewhat ambiguous guarantee of 20% market share for U.S. chip firms in the Japanese market. Numerical targets like this had been proposed as early as the 1983 U.S.-Japan High Technology Working Group, which had tried to figure out what to do about this competition. The negotiations over the target didn't quite go as you might expect. The Japanese at one time were thinking that the number would probably be closer to 40%. In other words, it wasn't a race to get the number really high on the part of the United States. It was a race to get a number that would offer a sort of property right in the industry such that the United States could spend, including on incentives, in a way that would make sense for domestic vendors, despite the leakage, internationally speaking, of the technologies. In other words, IP was a prerequisite to getting the story right. The same is true today. That's why this idea of doing more on intellectual property is really never going to be a secondary concern. It's always going to be a primary concern. It's what makes possible other spending, despite the fact that it's really easy to reverse engineer a chip. 
The challenge of semiconductors has always been this international diffusion of technology. We call them spillovers or positive externalities. Intel's legendary Robert Noyce once testified before a House Committee on Industrial Policy saying, quote, in an industry with two equal competitors, the winning strategy is to have your competitor bear the expense of creating the public good and then appropriate that public good to your own use as needed. That logic doesn't just play domestically, it plays internationally. What Noyce was talking about was the simple fact that in the 1980s, it cost about $80 million to design a family of chips, but a mere $100,000 to make a photographic copy of the main chip and pattern derivatives based on that photocopy. In other words, reverse engineer your way into state-of-the-art technology. This has always been a problem for the chip industry. In fact, it undermined a lot of the enthusiasm that Congress would have otherwise shown for Semitech. Semitech being the semiconductor technology manufacturing consortium that was the answer back in the 80s to the rise of Japan in some of the more interesting types of chips. The focus again being on getting into the submicron technology of the industry. The Congressional Budget Office had worries about Semitech along these lines, and it noted as much. It said, quote, the primary concern may be instead that Semitech's results will be disseminated too rapidly and become readily available to foreign producers, undermining the purpose of the program. IP has always popped up in the context of chips. Back in 1984, we had the Semiconductor Chip Protection Act, which was the first deal not to be strictly a patent or a copyright spinoff, but actually something with respect to chip mass protection. You have a lot of interest in the chip industry, and it was crucial from the beginning. The legendary company Digital Equipment Corporation actually timed the release of certain chips to coincide with upgrades of Japanese intellectual property regimes. Paragraph 4 of the 1986 Semiconductor Trade Agreement, moreover, went so far as to call on both the U.S. and Japan not to get in the way of giving each other access to state-sponsored research and development and the patents resulting therefrom. So you get the sense that whatever is going on in terms of reshoring, reshoring can only go so far in an industry where the technology readily spills over national borders. That's always been there. So now the question is, will we get things right in 2021? The push to reshore the semiconductor industry has certainly not come about haphazardly. President Trump urged the industry to bring more of their fabs or fabrication facilities back to the United States. In fact, Trump was able to coax Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company to build a $12 billion fab in Arizona. He also slapped the Section 301 tariffs on Chinese semiconductors and the manufacturing equipment to help make them. But that's the protectionist knee-jerk reaction that we also saw in the early 1980s. More usefully, the House and the Senate have now introduced bills last June, cleverly titled the Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act, or CHIPS. So there's half the side of this episode's title. CHIPS, Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act. 
The bills create a $10 billion federal grant matching investment tax credits and a variety of research and development funds. There's a lot to like about CHIPS. The Boston Consulting Group estimates that a failure to match government incentives on offer by countries like Singapore, South Korea, and Taiwan probably accounts for between 40 and 70% of the U.S. cost disadvantage in semiconductors. But the challenge is to avoid getting into a spending war that the U.S. probably doesn't want. For its part, Beijing also wants to become more self-sufficient in semiconductors. Its Made in China 2025 program sets the ambitious goal of supplying 70% of the country's needs domestically by 2025. Moreover, this past week, China's new five-year plan also rolls out considerable emphasis on getting semiconductors right. But the question is how to respond to all of this. The problem with the chip industry getting too decoupled from China is that there's no evidence that it's going to be anything good for the U.S. industry. In another BCG study, there are various scenarios sketched whereby the U.S. decouples from China. Now remember, you're talking about an industry in which chip vendors have to work closely with downstream users to get the product right. In fact, that's what's creating the very short half-life on chips more generally. Now, if you decouple fully from the Chinese market, BCG estimates that this would impact U.S. industry players more negatively than anything that Made in China 2025 could achieve for the Chinese industry. That's a really big statement because it reminds us that this decoupling conversation, which is part and parcel of the reshoring emphasis, has its limits where these business models and technology spillovers look as they do. It's worth remembering that the Computer Systems Policy Project, which represented downstream computer vendors here in the United States, warned that any effort to keep chip firms at arm's length from downstream Japanese firms would spell the doom of the industry writ large. Same thing today. Now, what is the way forward? Well, let's give some dip to the chips. And by dip, I mean the Defensive Intellectual Property Act, which I think has to complement any effort on the chip side. Taking a look back in terms of where the chip rivalry has come from, we can build on many efforts to get the IP side right, and this time do so with a much greater emphasis on trade secrets, including technical information, confidential business information, and know-how. Now, unlike back in the 1980s, the World Trade Organization as of 1995 has brought trade secrets into the portfolio of IP protected internationally. But for the Biden administration and for Congress to push forward on a chip strategy, and that's what the industry wants, not just money, a chip strategy. The action is also going to have to be taken up in the preferential trade agreements, such that we get more TRIPS plus provisions that cover trade secrets, as well as in the wording of bilateral investment treaties, thinking about the 2012 U.S. model bit and trying to make this more relevant to defending trade secrets internationally as well. These trade secrets are a big deal. 
The Semiconductor Industries Association reports that they account for probably 80% of the value of a company's intellectual property portfolio. Indeed, intangible assets like trade secrets now account for more U.S. investment than tangible assets. As a result, we need more attention to trade secrets. They have to figure prominently in all U.S. commercial packs, from trade deals to investor rights agreements. There are also weapons to be employed domestically, such as Section 337 of the 1930 Trade Act, which has been getting a serious workout in the realm of IP of late, despite its origins as being something quite other than an IP-focused measure. And this should be made as trade secrets friendly as possible. This would allow American semiconductor firms to better protect themselves, which has to be part of the equation, including from espionage, including from state-sponsored corporate espionage. But because we don't want everything going to trial, one emphasis should be in this regard to build up Section 337's mediation function so that the owners of U.S. trade seekers can engage in conversations with those deemed to be putting their trade secrets at risk in the shadow of stronger enforcement of better law. The point being, chips need some dip, and the dip has to be primarily fixated or focused on trade secrets. <laughs>